0: Strong support for Ukraine in the State of the Union address.
1: When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger.
0: I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new COVID test to treat initiative is announced by the Biden administration.
2: This is great. It will be for high-risk people. Obviously, we'd also like it to be available uh, right at home. We're delivered to the person's home without having to go to the pharmacy.
0: The county funds doulas to help new black mothers. And no Padres home opener this month as the Major League Contract Dispute continues. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Ukrainians in San Diego watched with the rest of the nation as President Joe Biden delivered a rousing State of the Union address last night. And the invasion of Ukraine was the first topic on his agenda. He said Russian President Vladimir Putin was to blame for war and said Putin had left his country more isolated than ever.
1: When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger.
0: Many of the president's comments on Ukraine were met with rare bipartisan applause. Biden framed the conflict as a battle between democracy and tyranny and said the U.S. and Western Europe are united in facing the threat.
1: Putin's latest attack on Ukraine was premeditated and totally unprovoked. He rejected repeated repeated efforts at diplomacy. He thought the West and NATO wouldn't respond He thought he could divide us at home, in this chamber, in this nation. He thought he could divide us in Europe as well. But Putin was wrong.
0: KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado spoke with several San Diegans who watched the speech, including political experts and politicians. And she joins us now. Kitty, welcome.
4: Thank you so much, Maureen.
0: People who are native to Ukraine or have relatives there were especially interested in what President Biden would say about the Russian invasion. What kind of reaction did you hear?
4: Considering this time has been unbelievably stressful for people with loved ones in Ukraine, I did speak with Nadia Haywa. She has family and friends there, um, some very close, uh, some in Kiev, and uh, some a little bit further to the West. But she says that... It's been so stressful. And and watching the speech was both hopeful, but also that some of the things that were said uh, should have been said a long time ago. Ukraine is fighting this war for all of Europe. It's not fair. All of Ukraine is grateful for all the
0: military support. But I think it's it's going to need some more personnel.
4: Did Nadia say she'd been in touch with her relatives in Ukraine? She did. She has been in touch. I mean, they have been working around the clock to stay in touch and to find out what her family needs, but all of them are staying put. They don't want to leave, including their 80-year-old cousin who is a professor at a university there in Kiev. and she said, I'm not leaving. She was recently hospitalized. She's set to be released on, on Friday, but she doesn't know how she's going to get to her sister's home and in, in leave. So it's very stressful for them just trying to figure out um, and just not knowing if their loved ones are going to be safe.
0: Now, the president announced last night that the Russian economy has already declined by 40% because of sanctions, and the U.S. Department of Justice is going after what he says are ill gotten gains the yachts, the luxury apartments, the private jets of Russian oligarchs. What does Nadia think about the tough sanctions that have already been introduced?
4: She says she's really happy this is happening but she just feels this group these this group of oligarchs have gotten away with so much for so long and she just feels that all of this tough action should have been taken a whole lot sooner because maybe all of this could have been prevented. And uh, she says she feels that Americans uh, should not buy one more drop of Russian oil. She feels that should have been added, as well as the airspace above Ukraine should be shut down. And she just really feels so strongly that the NATO allies should send troops. She says Ukraine has been left to fight the, the world's bully all by themselves. What
0: about the message that President Biden sent? Do experts say he hit the right note
4: on Ukraine? Well, the professor I spoke with, Professor Karin Hor, who specializes in White House communications, said the president had the perfect balance of toughness, resolve, and compassion for the people of Ukraine and, and for Americans here at home. She said the State of the Union was geared towards an international audience and specifically for Putin himself and uh, any of his ilk who are thinking that this is a good idea and uh, the difficult thing is now, she says, will be how Putin will react to these sanctions and this these words, these tough words. But will it make this, you know, man who seems already off the rails do something worse? That she says there's no telling, but she feels that the president did do his job last night and she says he did it well. Now, one aspect of the State
0: of the Union noted by almost everyone was the outburst of bipartisan applause for the U.S. support of Ukraine. Republicans gave Biden a standing ovation, something that is almost unheard of these days. What was the reaction within the San Diego congressional delegation?
4: in particular for uh, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs. This was her first State of the Union address, and she was there during the insurrection of January 6th, and she had so many things on her mind. She had to be ushered out of that exact same location. She sat near where she sat on January 6th, and she said that so many things were going through her mind, so being there for her was about overcoming trauma, Being proud to represent San Diegans. And she said the atmosphere there and the love and support for Ukraine was absolutely beautiful. And she said uh, it it felt good for uh, because for so long so many people have been so divided and to feel that unity uh, for the ukrainian people uh, for that moment she said it was really special for me it was really important
5: to have president biden address the situation at the top show his clear and steady leadership through this crisis and also that what we're doing here is not only about ukraine it's about standing up for democracy against autocracy
0: I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado. And Kitty, thank you so much.
4: Thank you so much.
6: Staying with the State of the Union, last night, President Joe Biden announced a new test-to-treat plan for COVID-19 using Pfizer antiviral pills. And now
1: we're launching the test-to-treat initiative so people can get tested at a pharmacy and if they prove positive, receive the antiviral pills on the spot at no cost.
6: Joining me to talk about this and more of the latest issues around the COVID-19 pandemic is our regular guest, Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Welcome back to the program. Thanks,
2: Jay. Great to be with you again.
6: So let's start with this announcement from President Biden. Why is a test-to-treat plan like this needed?
2: Well, this is uh, a significant part of a new 96-page plan released today. Uh, It is certainly something we need. That is, uh, Paxlovid is in short supply. It is a very potent pill that's safe that has a near 90% reduction in hospitalization. Uh, But when it gets into better supply, the plan is later this month at CVS and Walgreens, at least some of the stores, to have this test uh, to treat uh, loop available so that if you had symptoms of COVID, you could get a quick rapid test and a prescription for the five-day treatment. This is great, Uh, it will be for high-risk people Obviously, we'd also like it to be available uh, right at home where delivered to the person's home without having to go to the pharmacy, but it's a definite step in the right direction. It does require uh, coordination with pharmacists because this medicine, while highly effective and safe, has some significant interactions with common medicines that the, the pharmacist and physician will need to be aware of when that occurs.
6: So you you mentioned that coordination. Uh, How well do you think this plan will work?
2: It's something we want to do. It's a really uh, innovative plan. It's one of the best things that has been initiated by the administration since the pandemic began. Its only real uh, limitation is that the supply of the pills is so limited right now.
6: As you mentioned, the test to treat plan is just one of the strategies the Biden administration is announcing as part of the national COVID-19 preparedness plan. Um, What else are you seeing in the plan that uh, you think will address unmet needs?
2: Well, there's many components, uh, things like countering misinformation, which has never been taken seriously uh, by our administration and has led to a very limited vaccination that is We're 57th in boosters and 64th in the world in countries for primary vaccination. We have to get that markedly improved. Uh, There's better digital capture and surveillance that's planned. Uh, Things like uh, a pan-coronavirus vaccine that we're working on at Scripps Research and many other academic centers uh, in the country. These are some of the priorities laid out in the plan, and and they're really important ones.
6: Hmm. Also this week, masking in the state is now recommended for everyone, regardless of vaccination status. CDC guidance on masking says to wear a mask indoors in public in communities with high rates of transmission like we have in San Diego and Imperial counties. From your perspective, is recommending masks enough at this point?
2: Well, Jade, you you really nailed it because we are a high transmission uh, place right now in San Diego County. So um, the recommendation may not be strong enough, but hopefully uh, people will have their own good sense to wear a mask indoors, particularly people who are vulnerable of advanced age. Obviously, if they're immunocompromised, they're very sensitive to this issue, but we're not at a point to abandon masks, uh, not in San Diego, not until the circulating virus is much lower than it is today.
6: And California officials are are touting a new plan for living with the pandemic. We've heard from local officials that we will prepare for COVID-19 the same way we prepare for cold and flu. Uh, Does the science on COVID-19 support this guidance?
2: Well, I recently wrote in the LA Times that this is uh, not really what uh, we should be thinking about. Not only is there an enormous toll of long COVID, But uh, that still is the threat of uh, infections, uh, whether it's Omicron or whatever the next variant that we'll see. Uh, So living with it, uh, yeah, we'd like to move on and get to some kind of semblance of pre-COVID life. But we need to continue to respect this virus, that it has been unpredictable in two years. And the last chapter of this virus still lies before us. So Um, Yes, it's good that we can make some adjustment, but we're looking at a quiescent phase, likely maybe a couple few months. But there's too many things, including animal reservoirs, immunocompromised people, lack of containment of the virus throughout the world. All these things lead to the generation of of a new and uh, significant variant in the months ahead.
6: Can you talk a bit more about what's different between COVID compared to cold and flu?
2: Oh gosh! Well, uh, so much. I mean, the point is, I mean, just yesterday we saw from Northwestern uh, the uh, uh, an important paper on invasion of uh, the male genital tract through non-human primates uh, through the testes and the penis, and that's the mechanism where erectile dysfunction occurs. Uh, We have penetration of every organ uh, through COVID, uh, like uh, what we can see with myocarditis uh the kidneys uh the, the the uh damage the long COVID story uh is nothing like we ever seen with a prior uh pathogen in terms of the millions of people who have been affected uh, affected and we just saw evidence of the the heart and vascular complications at one year in a very devastating report uh from the va administration uh washington university so This is unlike the pathogens that uh, you mentioned, uh, the other coronavirus cold, common cold, or the flu. This is entirely different.
6: Let's turn to vaccine news. According to a study out this week, the lower dose of the Pfizer vaccine doesn't protect 5 to 11-year-olds from infection, as well as the full dose. What are the details from this study that you're paying attention to, and how should parents of young children be thinking about this new information?
2: Right. Well, this is an important CDC report uh, that actually counters the New York state that came out the day before, at least as it has it was reported. Uh, So the CDC report is about Omicron and it it spanned the age groups of five to 11 and then also the 12 to 17. And what it showed is that there was really excellent protection against hospitalizations uh, for the young children. But we knew with Omicron, our vaccines have not held up well for transmission and infection. And of course, that was what was seen. So it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that children, uh, particularly uh, in the Omicron phase, were not protected well by vaccines. But the good part is that we're, there was very strong protection against hospitalization. And that's what we are after right now, because Omicron, unlike any version of the virus previously, was a workaround uh, with respect to its remarkable ability to evade our immune system and cause infections. So here, we had to change what we expect from vaccines, which is protect from those infections getting severe, leading for children or any person to wind up in the hospital, and they work well for
6: that. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jay.
7: Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well.
6: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. National data show black mothers die in childbirth at about three times the rate of white women and black infants are more than twice as likely to die in their first year of life than white infants. Nationally, those numbers have been made worse by the pandemic. In San Diego County, there is now a program to help address this crisis and it starts with Doulas someone who provides physical and emotional support during pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum. Yesterday, the County Board of Supervisors passed an initiative to provide doulas, or birth attendants, to Black moms and other women of color. Nathan Fletcher, chair of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors, joins us to talk about the program. Chairman Fletcher, welcome.
8: Thank you for having me.
6: So for those who don't know what a doula is, can you tell us how they provide support and the benefits of having one?
8: Yeah, a doula is a, a trained health care provider uh, who's really equipped to, to support the mom uh, during the pregnancy, during labor, and then after birth. And And we, we have a lot of evidence and data suggest this is a, a really uh, important component uh, for, for women who want to choose this to be a part if it is available to really facilitate not only a healthy pregnancy, but a healthy birth and a healthy start to life. There's just not enough of them. And in particular, there's not enough of them in historically underserved communities. And it's a part of what contributes to that shockingly uh, high numbers we see around mortality for Black women and infants.
6: And tell us about the doula Pilot Program. What services would it provide?
8: Well, I I want everyone in San Diego to have access to quality, affordable health care. And that's a, a big, broad national issue. But when the community came forward and said, this is something you can fund, this is something you can do, to provide a segment of the population that doesn't even have access to this better access. We jumped at the opportunity. And so the county is gonna be developing what the pilot project will look like. Uh, But in essence, it will be funding for doula services uh, for pregnant women uh, who are in underserved communities to be able to access the service that we know uh, can have tremendous positive benefits. There just aren't enough folks out there. There's not enough traditional funding in the healthcare system. And so, we're going to, the program will now be designed because it's been approved. But the goal will be to get more doulas into more underserved communities to help more women who are going through the birth process.
6: And so, how long could someone get help from a doula?
8: Well, we're going to have to design the program. The first thing we had to do was, was approve the funding and approve the broad contours of it. And now, county staff will work very hard with community partners uh, to, to come up with the parameters of the program and then go through a procurement process to, to award contracts to those who will step in and be able to do it. And so we've, we've got a little bit of work left to do. Uh, but the first step was us as a board, and it was a unanimous, bipartisan vote to say, look, we think this is important, we're willing to dedicate resources to it, uh, and we want to get better health outcomes, particularly uh, in communities that have less access to healthcare services.
6: How does the program aim to address disparities in birth outcomes?
8: Well, I think you can look at the fact that black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth and see, well, that's, I mean, that is a, a shocking disparity. Then you come in and say, okay, well, now what do you do? Well, what you do is provide a service that, that has been shown to be effective at, at lowering that number, but is not presently available. So you go pull together some funding, you get your colleagues to get behind it, you get community support, and you pass a, a program and a policy to, to go in and try and address that clear disparity we see. And I'll be particularly interested in how we uh, assess once the program's designed its success. How much did this investment help us with the broader effort and aim to make sure people have access to quality, affordable health care? And then what did we learn from it? And perhaps it's something that comes back and and gets funded at at a much more significant level.
6: Have Black maternal and infant mortality rates in San Diego increased in recent years?
8: I don't know if it's increased. I mean, it's such a shockingly high uh, number. You, you would like to think it couldn't get much worse, but absent intentional effort and program to, to tackle it, there's no reason to believe it would get better. And, and you know, this idea came out of a lot of conversations that, that myself and my office had with community leaders about what can we do, uh, because it's just not right. Uh, it's not fair that, that segments of our population face this significantly worse outcomes. Uh, for the same process and procedure.
6: Why do you think these disparities exist?
8: Well, I think there's tremendous disparities in healthcare, which is who has access. Um, I mean, the simple reality is the inequities in our society are often dominated and based uh, by race. And, and it's not just economic, it's not just environmental, it's healthcare as well. Um, and, and and we've seen time and again in studies around the negative impacts of of, of lower income folks and people of color, not having the same access to affordable health care. And, and, you know, we're one of the only industrialized nations that doesn't provide universal health care to all of our citizens, which I believe we should do. Um, but in the absence of, of, of the federal government doing that, then we've got to step up here to, to try to tackle these needs. But, but there, there are significant gaps uh, in people being able to afford quality access to health care. Part of it's based on class and, and how much money you have, and part of it's based on the color of your skin.
6: And even when you account for socioeconomic status and education, these disparities still exist. What accounts for that?
8: Well, that's structural racism. I mean, that is the structural racism that is baked in to our society at all levels. I mean, look at the study about how much less people of color are prescribed pain medications by doctors because there's a sense that they don't feel pain the same way. Um, why do black women, a black woman who's a surgeon, why does she make less than the white man who's a surgeon with the same training and same expertise? I mean, this is not unique to healthcare. This is prevalent uh, throughout our society, and and I think it manifests itself here in healthcare. But it, it has its roots in the founding of the original sin of the founding of our country, in redlining. Uh, a child born in southeast San Diego today will live ten years less than a child born in La Jolla today. That's not a function of geography. That is a function of race. And those are irrefutable facts. And what we have to do is step in and recognize that intentional government policies created these inequities, and it will take intentional government policies to try and address them and get us on that path to a more perfect union and just give people a fair shot for a better life.
6: What are the next steps in getting the new county doula program underway? And how can people sign up for the program?
8: So the county's in the process now of designing the uh, contours of the program, what it will look like. Uh, then we, they will go out through an open and transparent procurement process uh, where community providers and doula providers can bid on being able to do this work uh, then the contract will will be awarded uh, and the services will begin to be administered so we've got a we've got a little a little bit we've, we've got a little little ways to go uh, until we we get to the point of, uh, of of this up and running but we took the most important first step, which was the board saying we're going to commit the funding and we're going to move forward with this program.
6: I've been speaking with Nathan Fletcher, chair of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. Chairman Fletcher, thank you very much.
8: Absolutely. Thank you.
6: California
0: could become the first state in the country to expand health coverage to all low-income immigrants in the state. Right now, most undocumented adults still aren't eligible for Medi-Cal coverage, and it's forcing some families to make life and death decisions. Valley Public Radio's Maddie Bolaños spoke to one of those families in Fresno County.
5: Maria Guadalupe Toledo Mejia is rounding a ball of masa in her hands. She's making baleadas for her husband, Sergio. They moved their family here to Fresno County three years ago from Honduras. Sergio says they work in the fields.
9: En la uva, pero pues... Primarily picking la verdad, grapes, he says, no,
5: but also wherever they'd send them, wherever there's work. But recently, they stopped working. In late December, 42-year-old Sergio rushed to the hospital. He couldn't breathe. Doctors did a series of tests and told him he had to have open-heart surgery as soon as possible. But Sergio said no. He's undocumented and uninsured. He told the doctor he had no money for surgery. He told them to send him home. He'd rather die in his house. Lawmakers say Sergio's experience is a prime example of why the state needs to expand Medi-Cal to all Californians, regardless of immigration status. Assemblymember Joaquin Arambula was an emergency room doctor before he took office.
1: Many people in our immigrant communities are fearful of seeking out health care if they do not have coverage.
5: And when they put off care, their conditions get worse and worse. They end up in the ER when disease is harder to treat and where care is the most expensive.
1: And it's costing you, the taxpayer, a fortune.
5: Governor Gavin Newsom says expanding Medi-Cal coverage will save money in the long run.
1: If you care not just about values and principles of morality, but if your only values and principles are advanced through economics, then that alone should be an argument in favor of universal health care.
5: The campaign to expand Medi-Cal to all low-income, undocumented residents started nearly a decade ago. The state began by covering undocumented kids, then young adults, and this year people age 50 and older will be able to sign up. Covering adults aged 27 to 49 would be the last step toward expanding insurance to all Californians. The California Republican Party did not approve of Newsom's overall budget proposal, describing it as woefully short on solutions for the problems plaguing Californians. Back in Fresno County, Lupita washes her hands before cleaning the wounds on Sergio's chest. He ended up going through with the heart surgery, but Lupita says they live in dread, waiting for the medical bill. They're lost, she says. They don't know if or when they are going to be charged for the follow-up appointments.
9: Doctors say Sergio
5: will be out of work for at least five months. He says he hopes the medical expansion is approved so that others won't have to go through what he's been through.
0: That was Mari Bolaños reporting for the California Report in Fresno. The Padres will not be opening their season on March 31st at Pitco Park. And for the first time in 27 years, Major League Baseball is canceling games due to a labor dispute. Both the league and the players' union say losing games was the last thing they wanted, but the latest round of contract talks broke down on Tuesday afternoon. Here's MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred's announcement yesterday after the league and its players were unable to come to an agreement.
2: I had hoped against hope that I would not have to have this particular press conference in which I am going to cancel some regular season games.
0: The owners say talks won't start again until Thursday. The labor dispute and lockout has now lingered on for months, disappointing fans and leaving a highly anticipated San Diego Padres season hanging in the balance. Here to tell us more is the Padres beat reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, Kevin Acey. And Kevin, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, there seemed to be some optimism a deal was getting closer yesterday. Then it apparently turned into a war of words. What happened?
9: Well, they just got back to business as usual. Uh, these things tend to devolve into rhetoric. Uh, now, often that is a precursor or a sign that things are about to you know, get resolved and people are about to compromise. But this just keeps going on and on and on. I do believe the owners were negotiating and would have got a deal done, but far more on their terms than on players' terms. And I do not believe that there's any way to interpret it. This is you know, my educated speculation talking to a lot of people there's no way to dispute that the owners that MLB was playing a public relations game as they often do trying to make it seem that they were trying to get something done they are losing the PR war throughout this
0: well here's what the MLB Players Association's executive director Tony Clark had to say yesterday
6: players want to play we we all know that but the reason we're not playing is simple A lockout is the ultimate economic weapon. In a $10 billion industry, the owners have made a conscious decision to use this weapon against the greatest asset they have, the players.
0: So obviously money is at issue here. How far away are the parties and why don't we have a deal yet?
9: We don't have a deal because the owners have not budged on the competitive balance tax. And that is kind of a soft or a de facto salary cap, or at least the owners treat it that way. Major League Baseball is the only pro sport uh, in North America or the major sports that does not have a salary cap, but there is a threshold at which you go over that and you are uh, fined. And the more consecutive years that you're over it, the stiffer the penalties. Last year, only the Padres by a little bit and the Dodgers by a lot went over that and five other teams came very close to it. It does seem anecdotally, at least that the owners do treat it as a salary cap and they have not budged on that number. And the players insist that they do. Uh, I believe, you know, when it comes down to it, that's about it, though this fight has always been for players about getting younger slash inexperienced players more money and getting it sooner. And the owners have come up quite a bit on that. There's some small issues there. But basically that those are the two big sticking points.
0: Now, what exactly has been canceled so far?
9: For two series, you know, you can't cancel one baseball game at a time. So it'll be a week at a time, perhaps two weeks at a time. For now, they canceled two series. For some teams, that's seven games. For some, it's six at the start of the season. And so for the Padres, it was four games against the Giants. Then they had an off day and then two games against the Rockies, all of those at Petco Park. So as of right now, their season would begin, uh, what is it, on the 7th of April, I don't think that's going to happen. I guess the teams or the two sides could get together tomorrow, hash something out here in a day or two, and maybe then. we But that is not the projection that most people are talking about within the game right
0: now. Hasn't the baseball season been shortened for a couple of years now? In 2020,
9: it was shortened to 60 games uh, due to COVID. That was very contentious between the two sides. Everybody lost a lot of money in that one. It, uh, <laughs> it was seen as a precursor to, to this uh, battle here. And last year, no, there was obviously thought going into it. Spring training was somewhat uh, shortened, but not really. Um, And, you know, we knew this was coming. And that's one of the real unfortunate things is it was so avoidable yet. Here we are. And yeah, it's, it's really a a sad thing, not just because we're losing games now, but as has happened
0: before, I think they're going to lose some fans too. Now, is this anticipated as a promising season for the Padres? It is, though anyone who followed last year, last
9: year was highly anticipated. The Padres, quote unquote, won the offseason, made a lot of trades, signed some players, and they were anticipated to be one of the top two teams, top two, three teams in Major League Baseball. And they were for much of the season. And then it sort of fell apart. So there are big questions about this year's team. There's some player positions that they need to be able to a fill, but the thought is that they are going to uh, be again a good team.
0: Now, other than the teams and the players, who else will be hurt financially by the loss of these games? Certainly, the people
9: that work at stadiums. Uh, and honestly, you hear the deflation in my voice. Uh, they, they're the ones who've been hit the hardest by the last two years. So last year was a full season, but early on, the Padres' first thirty-four games, and most teams. Games to about the middle of the summer, there was a limited attendance, which then meant you needed fewer people working concessions, fewer people taking tickets, uh, fewer people, gosh, selling tickets. And so, and then in 2020, they only played 60 games and there were no fans. So here we are, a third season where the lowest paid people in the whole baseball economy are again going to feel this the most.
0: And it impacts local businesses around Petco Park too, doesn't it?
9: Without a doubt. If you've been uh, downtown in the gas lamp, when there's not a baseball game or when there is a baseball game, you can, you can see the difference, uh, on, especially on a weeknight. And that hurts people. There are also people in all the towns where, there have been, where spring training usually would be going on. Now, they'll eventually get there three or four weeks, but they don't get there six weeks of uh bands making pilgrimages out there. And it's uh, it's a time when everyone's having fun and in a good mood, and you know, people make days and weekends of it, and it is an influx to the economy of, of those cities as well.
0: You said that there might be a loss of some fans due to this labor dispute. What are you hearing from Padres fans?
9: Overwhelmingly, people are angry, and mostly it is at the owners, but regardless, they're upset. Many And I've received dozens of emails today saying that they won't go back. (laughs) History tells us that many of them will, though it may take a while and some of them will not. There have only been spikes in which baseball a few times over the past 27 years, since that disastrous strike that wiped out the 94 World Series, that baseball has reached that level of popularity. And, you know, this time in 2022, there's even more for potential fans for patrons of baseball to be distracted by.
0: Okay, so they're supposed to go back to the negotiating table tomorrow. What's the next shoe to drop here?
9: Well, some more rhetoric. We can almost always count on that. Uh, I've covered a few of these uh, over the years. Look, it's going to be time to get down to business. Do not be surprised that they don't meet tomorrow or that there's nothing substantial that comes out of it. And do not be surprised that this drags on for weeks, if not into April.
0: Wow. I've been speaking with Kevin Acey. He's Padres Beat Reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. Kevin, thank you so much.
9: That was a pleasure.
8: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
6: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The San Diego Music Awards recently released its list of nominees for this year, and topping that list with a record five nominations, including Song of the Year, is San Diego jazz soloist Rebecca Jade. She's the winner of multiple San Diego Music Awards, performs with her own band, Rebecca Jade and the Cold Fact, and she's also a backup singer for Sheila E. Today, we're bringing you an interview with Rebecca Jade that we first aired last year about her own musical influences. Here's that story. My mom's a jazz
10: singer. Shout out to my beautiful mom. And um, growing up, she helped expose me to a lot of different musical styles. Billie Holiday was, was one of the icons, you know.
0: Good morning, honey, you old gloomy sight. Good morning, honey, thought we said goodbye last night.
10: Her voice, there was something just so haunting and so, I, I can't even explain what it is. I couldn't even tell you technically, but there was something about her voice when I was, when I was first hearing her that just drew me to her.
0: Wish i forget you, but you're here to stay. It seems I met you when my love went away every day i start by saying to you good morning hearty what's new she
10: lived a, a life you know there's was, there was such sorrow and sadness and yet power and vulnerability and there's so many layers that i think i hear when i hear her her voice and it just draws me to her and so it kind of reflects in my writing i don't know why but i just i always tend to write love songs or yeah i try to write songs that are encouraging and empowering as well but i also tend to to have a lot of like love songs or heartbreak songs and i think that being a fan of billy Holiday almost gave me the permission to be comfortable to do that, you know? Yeah, she was one of the first voices that that just really stuck into my my ear, my soul, my my heart. Good morning, my sit down. Whitney Houston is definitely a big influence for me. I tried to sing like her, I was trying to learn her runs, and she just had this pure voice that it was undeniable. All at once, I finally took a moment and
4: I'm realizing that you're not coming back, and it finally
10: So, All At Once was just one of those songs that I just loved the melody and I just loved the way she sang, I loved the way she sang everything, I just remember that being one of the the songs that was not really, you know, know, everybody knew I want to dance with somebody and Greatest Love of All, but I think this one was just one of those that was not as popular, but was such a great song when she passed i remember going you know like a lot of people do oh i want to reminisce on and i was like gosh she had so many amazing songs and i knew so many of them and she just really really impacted me to be that voice to try to to try to be like i, I did try to sing like her I and mean, that's how that's how much she meant to me
4: wishing <laughs> you
10: Celia Cruz is one of gosh she she was just she's kind of is more of a representation of the style of music that my my mom and I listened to a lot. I, I was partly raised in Puerto Rico. Like I said my mom was a a jazz singer. She was a jazz singer there in Puerto Rico. So, Latin music that Puerto Rican Cuban was just flowing and everywhere. It was part of it was part of my upbringing. When we moved to um, California, it was just one of those, like, we always still played that music a lot when it was time to do something, to make dinner, to get ready for something. We were always playing Celia Cruz and Tito Puentes, and it was part of the catalog of my upbringing. five movies is Amadeus you know that's the soundtrack is is all (laughs) is Mozart's Requiem and there's such a contrast you know you hear this wide array of instrumentation that is just powerful and I you know and I I can hear the melodies in my head and you just for me physically like my head moves when it's like these like low and big sounds comes in and and then or there's a lead vocalist that that is takes this you know this part and it's just there's something that is just so moving and it's incredible to see it and feel it I just I just love it My mom really helped me a lot with vocal harmonies. Oftentimes it would be just the two of us singing, you know. As I got a little older, she started to share with me bands like Manhattan Transfer, where vocals are just almost the instrumentation. You know, they they are, they are the, the main instrument. Anytime we would go on car rides, or if I'd go on car rides with my dad, I remember we drove one time, I think to Texas, and we were listening to Manhattan Transfer, and just it's just uh, again a different style that, like classical, where you know you just have this wide range of instrumentation. I love how Manhattan Transfer, like how they take vocal and put a wide range within that scope, within that style, you know? I'm so blown away by it, and uh, I love listening to vocal acrobatics like Manhattan Jackson. truly believe that the Mozarts and the um, Take Six and the and the Manhattan Transfer, that all reflects still into the shows that I do, either with Sheila E or my own stuff, Cold Fact and all it all relates uh, 100%. So I encourage people to keep at it if there's any doubts within yourself of, you know, oh, I don't know how this is going to help or contribute. I truly believe it all contributes in some form or fashion. So to stick with it and uh, at some point it manifests itself to reveal that that it was uh, it was part of your evolution. <laughs>
6: That was San Diego musician Rebecca Jade. This story was produced by Julia Dixon Evans and Brooke Ruth. You can find links to all the songs that influenced Rebecca Jade, as well as her own music, on our website at kpbs.org.